This morning is our final Sunday in Advent. The waiting is almost over. I hope you're done with your Christmas shopping at this point. We've been reflecting over the last few weeks on this theme for this season. The incarnation proves that God will keep all of his promises. That is, the ultimate proof of God's promise-keeping nature is shown in the fact that he sent his son to take on flesh and to redeem his people. And over the weeks, the last few weeks, we've seen how in the Christmas story, God kept his promise to come near to his people. How in sending Jesus, God's coming near is bringing the message of salvation, of people saving people from their sins. We've seen how this message of salvation is bigger than just the Jewish people and their own expectations, but that it's a message for all of the earth, all of the peoples of the earth reaching even to us here. The Christmas story as narrated in Matthew has been our guide for these last few weeks, and so we'll continue there in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. It's on page page 682, if you're using the Bibles that are in the pews. There's also a sermon outline on pages 6 and 7 in the bulletin to help follow along. Our theme this morning is this. The incarnation proves that God will keep his promise to protect and to guide his people. In other words, we see that God's promise of salvation guaranteed in Jesus and given for all of the earth, will truly come to pass in the lives of his people. God has promised to keep, to protect, to guide his people in this life and into the life that is to come. He will uphold each one of us, as we will see in our text this morning. Again, this isn't a new theme, of course, for Christmas. All through the Old Testament, we see God intervening on behalf of his people into history He guides and protects them, sometimes by a pillar of cloud or fire, sometimes by the words of the prophets, sometimes through dreams or visions or visitations of angels, sometimes in battle, sometimes through his fatherly discipline. God was not distant, aloof, or uncaring at all. God's care for his people in the Old Testament, as we see it, is intimate and is relevant, is obvious, and is trustworthy. We see the same as we continue in the New Testament and in the Christmas story here, God keeping his promises. Read with me then from Matthew 2. We'll start in verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. 
Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Please pray with me. Father, this morning again, as we come to your word, we need your help and we need your guidance and we need to see what you would have for us to learn this morning. Father, we're thankful for this um, word that you've given us, for this message, for this story. Help us to understand it and help us to see how it changes us and how it declares to us your gospel and the good news that we know in sending your son and in the fact that you keep your promises. Guide me now as I speak, guide us all as we hear that you would be lifted up and that you would speak to your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't recently read the book or seen the movie The Best Christmas Pageant Ever by Barbara Robinson, I would recommend doing so. It's been decades since I read it until I read it this year. And in a, a way that you see as an adult that you don't always see as a child, I see a deeper layer in the story about the beauty of the most unlikely people being changed by the Christmas story, about the danger of self-righteousness and church as usual. If you recall the story, it centers on the Herdman family, a group of the meanest, nastiest, and most ill-behaved kids in town. They begin to go to church because they heard that there are snacks there. And they end up taking, by threat of force, all of the important roles in the Christmas pageant. And one of the first problems that were encountered as they're starting their Christmas rehearsals was that these children didn't know the Christmas story. They didn't know about the wise men and the shepherds and the rest of it. And what was a very ordinary pageant for church folks, the same every year, took on a totally new meaning for the church and for these children because it was all new to them. So if you recall, in the course of hearing the story for the first time, the Herdman kids had a lot of questions. They also had a lot of suggestions. They thought that the angel of the Lord, remember, should say Shazam, (laughs) when appearing to the shepherds, you know, right out of a comic book. They accused the wise men of being dirty spies, of uh, saying that they would report back to Herod. But their greatest astonishment really was about King Herod himself, who would try to kill Jesus as a baby. They even went, if you recall, to the public library, and they wanted to find out more about Herod. They got a book about him, and they reported at the next, uh, at the next rehearsal all of the things that they learned about King Herod. They wanted to change the Christmas story into a tale called something like Revenge at Bethlehem in which Herod is hanged or burned at the stake at the end of the story, in the, you know, in the final scene. But, but there's something correct in this reaction, isn't there? If we had just read this story for the first time, we would truly be astonished at this, at this part of it, at this plot to kill Jesus at, right from the beginning of his life. And as we've seen over these weeks, as God has come near... As he sent his son, bringing salvation for all who believe for the nations. As God has come near, there's opposition. Battle lines are drawn. People will pay for this message with their lives many times over as the church declares it to the world. So why did Matthew include this story? It's not something that we perhaps like to dwell on at Christmas time. In the midst of the Christmas story of world-changing salvation... In the midst of this story of the certain down payment and guarantee 
of the healing of all that is broken is a picture of unspeakable cruelty and evil and brokenness. My plan for us this morning is to look at the text, seeing some of the details that we see, and then spend a bit of time considering some of the bigger picture questions that are raised for us as we look at the story. As we begin, we noticed a few weeks ago, uh, Joseph does it again here. He's a faithful leader for his family. He's obedient to the Lord. Verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I call you, until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. The second time, the Lord has spoken to Joseph in a dream, and again, Joseph obeys promptly, leaving in the middle of the night with Mary and Jesus as a baby. Imagine how difficult this was. They weren't even in, Beth- they weren't even in Nazareth. They weren't even at home. They were staying in Bethlehem. They were on the road, and now they're called to get up and go in the middle of the night as refugees, poor people, to a a distant and foreign country. You wonder if even they had to use the gifts of the Magi to survive on this journey, and the gold and, and the precious things. Matthew tells us that this, these events fulfill a prophecy in the Old Testament, verse 15. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I, call my, I called my son. This is a quotation from Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. In the context of Hosea, we read this beautiful passage of God's tender compassion and his love, his heartbreaking love for his people. As they reject him, God says, "What, what can I do? I can't give up my people. I will still love them. I will relent from the calamity I'm sending on them. I will care for them. And so we see God caring for Joseph and Mary and Jesus in this story. And the prophecy also reminds us, of course, of the original exodus from Egypt. In that event, God called the nation of Israel his firstborn son, in Exodus 4.22. As he rescued them from slavery and brings them out into a relationship with him. The exodus, the exodus of course, is the quintessential Old Testament picture of God's salvation and redemption. And so we're shown here that that event of physical salvation from slavery to, to Egypt is a picture of, of Jesus pointing to him, the one who brings complete and comprehensive salvation, not just a physical salvation, but a, a whole person salvation to the whole world. We turn it as well, and we can see on the flip side that Jesus has his own exodus from Egypt coming out of the land of the historic enemies of God's people to grow up and live among his own. Last week we saw Herod's response to the news about the birth of Jesus and the report of the wise men was one of opposition. Herod is the Antichrist figure in this story who seeks to work against God's plan, and we see that happening here in verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Just a bit of background about Herod may be... Helpful if you haven't been to the public library and read up on him recently. 
He was a very complex man, brilliant and talented early in life, unstable, cruel, and paranoid later in life. Racially, Herod was an Arab from the region of Edumia. Uh, religiously, he was Jewish because the Jews had conquered and then converted that region some century before. Culturally, Herod was Greek. Speaking and writing Greek is his first language, steeped in Hellenistic learning. And, and we see his attempts to make Jerusalem more like Athens, to make it more Greek. But politically, Herod was a Roman, always siding with Rome in the conflicts of his life and rule. He was a powerful and effective leader in his younger years. But as we see in the case of many famous tyrants in history, he unraveled in his later years. Sick in body and mind, near the end of his life, historians have cataloged many examples of the kind of cruelty that we read about here, though there's no specific reference to this story. His sons, in, in outside of biblical sources, of course, his sons were often seen as political rivals. He had a number of them killed. One or more of his ten wives were killed as well. So tragically, this event, this account has a ring of truth to it, doesn't it? Herod seems fully capable of ordering this kind of event. He's one or two years probably from his death and very sick. Uh, commentators speculate, just perhaps to give us a sense of the scope of it, based on the population of Bethlehem at the time, maybe this would have involved 20 or so boys, children, we don't really know, but that's an, that's an estimate that gives us maybe a scope of it. In all of his rage, Herod fails, Right? He can't overcome. He fails to get Jesus and just creates this senseless tragedy and devastation. We get another glimpse at this event behind the veil, as it were, if we look at Revelation 12. This morning, we, of course, don't have a lot of time to get into the details of Revelation. It is my policy to refuse to answer any questions about interpretations of Revelation. I'm just just kidding. Um, But, of course, it's a difficult book. But the scene that we see in Revelation 12 is very clear, and it connects here very, very clearly. The scene is of a woman in labor and of a great dragon that is waiting to devour the child that will be born. God intervenes, snatches up the child about whom it was is said that he will rule the nations. Clearly, this is a picture of Jesus and his mother Mary. God snatches up the child, protects the child, also protects the mother. Though then, of course, though this isn't really in chronological order, a battle breaks out. A war between the dragon and the one-third of the stars of the heaven that he's knocked down to his side against uh, the angel Michael and his uh, angels in heaven. The dragon is defeated and hurled down to the earth. Then uh, read with me, Revelation 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of the brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. By the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. 
But woe to the earth and, and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. This glimpse shows us now who dwell on the earth, both the victory of the God of God and the fury of his enemy. To do all the harm that he can until his time is finished. It's as a glimpse of the story from another perspective. It sheds light on our own experience too, doesn't it? Salvation in the midst of violence, destruction, and sadness. We should also notice here as we come back to Matthew, again the connection of this passage with the Exodus story. Jesus is the new and greater Moses. As Moses was saved in God's providence while other baby boys were not, so also Jesus is saved and protected and brought away to safety while others are not. In verses 17 and 18, Matthew again here shows us that there's a connection of the writings of the Old Testament prophets. There's a weeping and a sadness experienced by the mothers of the exile in Jeremiah 31, experienced by mothers and fathers of Bethlehem, foreshadowing this great sadness. As the story goes on, Joseph is guided back to Nazareth by two dreams. Again, God guides him. Again, he obeys. Herod died probably in 3 or 4 B.C., Um, The Romans divided up his regions into three parts to be ruled by some of his sons. Therefore, Joseph avoided the territory of one son and settled in Nazareth. Matthew gives us a curious reference here in verse 23. Uh, It says, uh, So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called Nazarene. This is the typical formula to point to a prophecy that Matthew uses over and over again in the Old Testament, but the words, he will be called a Nazarene, are not found anywhere in the Old Testament. So scholars debate exactly what was Matthew pointing to? What did he mean by this? What, what passage in the Old Testament was clear in Matthew's mind that this is a prophecy of? Because we don't see it quite so clearly. What was he pointing to? So there's, there's debate about it. Here's what seems most likely to me. Nazarene likely comes from the Hebrew word for a sprout or branch or a sapling. It's something that grows and is green. The name of the town in Nazareth is thus connected to this word for a small green and growing thing, a branch or a sprout, though Nazareth isn't mentioned at all in the Old Testament by name. So again, how is Matthew connecting Nazareth... He will be called a Nazarene with Jesus, the Messiah. The most likely connection in my mind, though there, again, are a few options, is found in Isaiah 11, verse 1. The passage in Isaiah 11 is a picture of a felled tree, a stump that looks dead, but is revived as new growth begins from it. The verse in Isaiah 11, 1 says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From Jesse's roots, a branch will bear fruit. Again, whether Matthew had this passage in Isaiah in mind or not, we aren't certain. But this passage is certainly a reference to Jesus. Isaiah is pointing to the Messiah, who's two things. He's a unique son of Jesse, and he's a branch from the root of Jesse. And both of these are very important references. 
Many kings in the Old Testament are called, in the line of the kings, are called sons of David. But biblically speaking, there's only one son of Jesse. So it should jump out to us. The only son of Jesse is David. This prophecy is talking about a second David. It's talking about a great one. Not just one of the line of kings, but a great king who will live and come from the line of Judah. That's the first reference. The second reference, the branch from the root of Jesse is interesting also. It's not from the stump, it's from the root. It goes down underneath before Jesse to the root where Jesse is coming from. And I think that points us back, way back, back to the beginning, to the root of the promise. Genesis 3.15. In the midst of the curses on Adam and Eve for disobeying God in the Garden of Eden, there's the seed promise that the descendant of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent and the serpent will strike him on the heel. And the rest of the biblical narrative up to today is the outworking of this battle. The serpent against Eve's descendant. The dragon against Michael. Herod against Jesus. Satan against God. It's the great conflict of all of history. Part of the point of this prophecy is that the branch will bear fruit. From a stump that looks dead and lifeless, new growth will come, a fruitfulness and life. So if we take these two pictures together, the son of Jesse, the great one, we'll clearly see it's pointing to Jesus. He's the focal point of the Old Testament, of course. He's the greatest king, the king of kings, great David's greater son. He's the one who gives life, the one who renews life, and who gives life to a world that seems dead and lifeless. As we recognize the truth about Jesus, even in this passage, we also see, and we know that as the time of the New Testament approaches, that Nazarene seems to be a term of contempt or indifference. Nathaniel asks, can anything good come from Nazareth? If you remember, the prophecy points to the greatness of Jesus. We see that Jesus is also treated with contempt in the same words. He's the focal point for both devotion and opposition. Let's take a step back here and consider some of the bigger issues that we see. Clearly, these texts are telling us The life in earth as we experience is is lived in a battleground. The forces of Satan and the forces of God are warring. In the big picture, in all of life, all of the time. God's plan is moving forward. God's plan cannot be stopped, but it can be opposed. And if indeed it's true that we're living in the midst of this kind of battle, then we see the effects of it all around us. In a world that is both at the same time deeply broken and also in the process of being mended and fixed and redeemed. And so we feel this kind of dissonance, don't we? We feel this kind of incongruity between what we know to be true and what we experience. There is a loving and sovereign God ruling over this world. The world is deeply and randomly broken. 
There is a tremendous cosmic plan of redemption and salvation that has already been accomplished in Jesus Christ. There's a feeling of the senselessness and the large and small tragedies and sadnesses of our lives and of our world. Certainly we can think of many examples of this in our own lives, in our own histories, when life seems unfair, when tragedy strikes. Does God give us answers to this tension that we feel? The pain and the anxiety of it? What answers does God have for the parents in Bethlehem, for parents in Connecticut, for us today? First, I think that life in the midst of a battle changes our perspective, and it must change our perspective. We're, accust- we're, be- we're accustomed to being told that life is lived for me and that security can be found in this life. Because there's a war going on, bad things happen. Bad things happen to you. Bad things happen to those that you love. Sometimes we suffer because of our allegiance to Christ, because of him. Sometimes we suffer because of our own bad choices or the fault of others. Sometimes we suffer because there's a war going on. And people, like it or not, are sometimes in the wrong place at the wrong time, or sometimes they're afflicted because there's a lot of affliction going around, because our world is broken. There's a furious enemy who's real, who wants to destroy and ruin, and he wants to multiply pain and heartache. This world. And I think that leads us to remember the truth that this life isn't ultimate. This life isn't ultimate for anyone, for us, for our children. It's simple to say, it's hard to believe. This life isn't ultimate because we're fully invested in it. We're invested in our careers and our homes, we're invested in our parents and our children, our spouses our friends and our family. And that's good. That's God's calling for us, to invest in others, to give our best, to honor Him. But we remember that this life isn't ultimate. When tragedy strikes or hits close to home, we have moments of clarity about the brevity of life and about eternal things, but life goes on and we can't always dwell on those things and we can forget that this life isn't ultimate. And we can want to put our eggs in the basket of this life. But Jesus shows us something different in his example. Jesus didn't die with the babies in Bethlehem. God preserved his son. God kept him. God kept him from the hands of those who wanted to throw him off of a cliff in Luke 4. God kept him from the wind and the waves of the sea raging in Galilee. God kept him from death and starvation in his temptation for 40 days. God protected his son all along until he didn't, until the cross. And then God gave up his son into the hands of evil men, committing the greatest injustice in history. What does this mean about God's promises? The theme for us today is that the incarnation proves that God will keep his promises to protect and to guide his people. Let's look at those two. God promises to protect his people. He promises to watch over us and to keep us safe. He is our keeper. 
He is our shepherd. But that doesn't mean and can't mean protection from all harm. Somehow God's version of security must seem a bit different from ours. In Luke 21, Jesus is describing the battle of this life before his, with his disciples. He talks about, he catalogs the kind of suffering that they will face because of him. He says, some of you will be hated because of me. Some of you will be delivered up and betrayed and put to death. And then Jesus says, but not a hair of your head will perish. You may suffer and die, but not a hair of your head will perish. God's promise of security is ultimate. It's beyond beyond anything that this life can offer us. We look with eyes of faith now to see this promise. We don't see it exactly lived out in front of us. We have to look with eyes of faith. And we trust, and we can trust, that we're safe and secure in God's hands. That's the truth. We're safe and secure in God's hands. When, no matter what happens around us, even when the world seems to be crashing in around us, that's God's promise to us. That he'll keep us, that he'll be our shepherd. In eternal ways. That his version of security may be different than what we are expecting. Second, I think we, that we, the second promise is that God promises to guide his people. To lead us in our decisions. To give us wisdom and discernment as we ask for it. And I was think, as I was preparing and thinking about the sermon, I realized that we need this all the more if life is lived in a battle. If this is really a war, then we urgently need God's help. We need his wisdom. We need to seek it and find it in his word. We need his guidance. We need his direction. We need his perspective on this life. And as God led and guided Joseph, the wise men and the others in the story, of course, God promises to lead and to guide his people. It's his promise to you, to lead you, to guide you. As we conclude, I think we come full circle here about Advent and Christmas in the Christmas story. In the incarnation, Jesus proves that salvation is breaking into a broken world. As we saw these last few weeks, heartache is part of the soil in which the seed of redemption grows. A barren couple, an overwhelmed young woman, a heartbroken young man are some of the major characters in this story. Foreigners who seek and find, who give their worship and their most precious gifts, point us to a procession that is to come as part of this story. A tyrannical ruler and a grieving town have a part in this story too. Because this is a true story. Because this is a real story. Because it's an ultimate story. Good news of great joy for all the people. All because, of course, of the main character, of our Savior who came to earth, full of grace and truth, to seek and to save, to overcome the curse, and to begin the remaking and renewing of our world. That's, that's the Christmas story. All praise and honor to him. Amen. Please pray with me.
Father in heaven, we are thankful this morning that we can see your promises worked out in history and in our history. Promises fulfilled. Protection, guidance. Of a bigger picture salvation that is offered and received. And that that salvation isn't small, but it's for the whole world. And that it's not just about this life, but it's about something bigger. Father, we thank you that we can see these things clearly, and we pray that this message, that your word would change us, would continue to help us to grow, and to learn, to follow you. Work this into our hearts, even this busy season. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we respond.